Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So last week we were in Romans chapter 6 and we talked about our change in relationship to sin as it pertains to now a life in grace. And so what does that mean for us? And so we dealt with this idea of license to sin. And so, you know, Paul's words are not giving us freedom to sin. It's not like now that you're in grace, you can go and live how you choose and how you please. That's not what he was saying. In fact, he was stating to us that there is now freedom from sin and that we're able to live outside of sin because of our death with Christ and our our burial and our resurrection, right? He's saying, now sin has no hold on you for those that live in this resurrection power. And so we made the statement last week that said, too many Christians believe the cross for forgiveness, but they don't walk in the power of the resurrection. And so that resurrection power is that freedom to live outside of sin or apart from sin. And it's this shift and this change. Does that mean we are no longer tempted Absolutely not, right? We are still fighting the, the, the carnal flesh side of our human nature. But now through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are equipped with this resurrection power to be able to overcome the sin that wants to drag us down and constantly beat us down. And I'm getting tripped up on wires and constantly uh, pull us away, right? And so we talk through that. Now, I want to bring attention to something from the end of chapter six, which will help us lead into chapter seven. And he uses it. Paul uses the word twice at the end uh, in verse 619 and 22. uh, 619 says, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to Holiness, and that's the that's the key word. Holiness there is probably better translated to the word sanctification sanctification. That's a good $3 word that you can put in your pocket and walk around with like a theologian or some sort, right? Sanctification. Here's what sanctification is. It is this ongoing, continual process of becoming holy. So here's what he says in 622. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to, and there's that word again, holiness. It's the same word, sanctification. And the result is eternal life. So sanctification is this, again, never-ending process of being purified and being made like Christ, right? And holiness so would mean to be set apart or consecrated so that you are more in the image of Christ, right? So it is an ongoing, continual work. How many of you can look at your life at this point now compared to the moment of conversion or salvation and go, I am a different person from that moment to this person, right? And it has a positive transformation, right? Where you go, I have grown. I, I live a, a, a better life, a more uh, sin-free life, right? And you go, I walk now more in righteousness than I did when I first got saved. And that's the hope because that is that process of sanctification, being sanctified. So we have to determine the difference between justification and sanctification. 
So we are justified by our faith in Christ, meaning in that moment, you are as saved as you will ever be, right? You cannot be more saved than in the moment you receive Christ. So that is just, you are then justified. But then sanctification is that continual process of being purified and being cleansed and being made holy constantly. And because again, our carnal man, our human flesh did not die. Therefore, our desires to sin within us aren't exactly dormant and dead, right? So this process of sanctification is pushing that part down over and over and over. Here's where we get to begin to, we can run into some problems. This is what Paul's gonna talk about today in Romans chapter seven, is this idea that, okay, as I become more aware of my sin in my life, as I become more aware of the issues that I deal with, you go, maybe they started out as these big sin problems and now they've gotten smaller and smaller, more personal, more inward things, but you're more aware. So as we become more aware, we start thinking, well, I've gotta be better, 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 better. And then we start placing it on ourselves to carry the way of living this moral, godly life of righteousness. And so we begin to say, okay, these are the rules. These are the guidelines. This is what I must do. And then now our righteousness becomes a burden on us that we try to carry and live out on our own. This then begins to fall into the realm of legalism. So legalism, what really, what is legalism? It is the belief that I can become holy and please God by obeying laws. It's measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. Here's the weakness in legalism, okay? Is that it sees sins, plural, and not sin as the root issue of the trouble. And so when we begin to point out and specify like, well, I, I, this is, I struggle here, 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 and here, and I've committed 18 sins today or whatever. You know what I mean? You start doing that. Well, all of a sudden you are under the weight of the law and, and the weight of legalism rather than going, I have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with and I need to go to the father and then I need to step into now this new resurrection life, which is promised to me, right? And so Paul is setting this up. He's saying, listen, this is a sanctification process that you are are justified. Now, as you walk in the spirit, you're going to work through the process of being cleansed and purified and made like Christ. And it is ever in, it's never ending, right? Like it just goes on and on and on and on. So I'll tell you this in my years of, of youth ministry and even into adult ministry, a lot of the counseling that I've had to do in talking with people that, that I hear it a lot. Like I struggle all the time. I keep failing. I keep failing. I want to be better. I want to be right. And, and I, when you wrap your mind around, you start processing, you go, you know what this is? This is an, like a, un, like it's a byproduct of of a form of legalism, unaware of it in a sense going, uh, I want to do right. I want to do right. I want to do right. But I fail. I fail. I fail. I fail. And so there's positives in that one. There's the recognition of the sin, right? There's a recognition of the need to be in a place of repentance again and going, okay, Lord, I don't want this anymore. I want to be free of this. And yet I constantly over and over and over fail. And we're going to talk through why is this? And, and part of it has to do with the fact that the law makes us aware of our sin, and so we're going to go through that here in a moment as we go through chapter seven. But I've seen this time and time again, where it's like, where you say, listen, if you would step out of trying to place the weight of doing right on yourself 
and step into the righteousness of God, understanding the freedom we have in Christ and walk in his grace. Again, grace isn't freedom to sin. It's the empowerment to live outside of it. It's freedom from sin. And so now we can step away from this way of I have to be, I have to be, I have to be, I have to be, and move into this place of by the grace of God, I am. Right, so, so that is kind of what I've seen. So last week we talked about license some, somewhat to sin. Like, did God give us a license to just live in sin? And, this whole, and we're going to talk more about that. And the answer is no, no, he didn't. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, we are called to be a righteous people. Uh, but then the law was not given or continues so that we feel this weight and this pressure and this, this constant condemnation of doing wrong. And we'll get more into that next week in Romans chapter 8. Because uh, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So uh, we're going to go through more and continue this conversation. But let's start today in Romans chapter 7. And uh, right off the top in the first six verses, the first thing this morning is this. We're going to understand the authority of the law. We have to understand the authority of the law. The first, uh, first six verses say this. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So he's basically saying, Okay, all of you uh, Jews who have now turned to Christianity, I'm speaking to you. Direct, hear me. You know the law, okay? He says for that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So he's saying as soon as they're dead, guess what? The law has no bearing over them. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. Could you imagine how awful that would be in the sense of your husband died, but you're still legally married to him, but he's dead, right? It doesn't work. He's like, no. So now that law, you are no longer bound to that law because your husband has passed away. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. He's like, so you understand what's happening here? He's like, oh, okay. So if the husband's alive and then she goes, that's an adulteress. But if he dies and she marries, oh, now she's not. So she's freed then from the law of that marriage. And we're going to talk more through that in a moment. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This goes back to that sanctification and that process and the holiness. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. Notice that's capital S referencing the Holy Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There's a whole lot there. So let's talk through this a little bit. So this actually is continuing the discussion from chapter six, starting in verse 15, where, where Paul poses the question, shall we sin? Essentially, shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, right? He's asking this question, shall we, shall we keep going? And this is my, my paraphrase form of that question, but shall we keep going in sin? Because now we're not under the law, but we're under grace, to which Paul vehemently says, absolutely not. He says, certainly not. That's not what this is, Right. So he's continuing this conversation. So in that portion of scripture, though, he used the illustration of the master and the servant to explain how the Christian should offer himself now to righteousness. And he says, even in the same way you offered yourself to unrighteousness, right? It's the same passion that you had for that old life. Now you have that same passion then for the Lord. And I'm moving quickly, so I apologize. Um, 
if I'm talking really fast for a moment. So, but in this passage, he shifts his illustration to uh, a, a, almost a law, that, well, a Hebrew law, stating that if a man and woman are married and the husband dies, now the woman is no longer under the law of that marriage. She is now free to marry another man. Because here's why. We have marriage is a physical act. It is a physical union. And Genesis 2 tells us that the two shall become one flesh, right? And so because it is a physical union, there must be a physical change to the relationship, right? And so now he's not making a conversation about divorce and remarriage. That's not what this is. He is not trying to go down the road. There are other physical implications that would be the cause for divorce. And we're understanding of that. That's not what this is. He's simply needing the purpose of death in this illustration. So he's, death is imperative in what he's saying. So because death has happened, that is a physical change in the relationship. Now there is freedom from that law. There's freedom from that marriage, right? So we're seeing that because he's wanting to bring in the understanding of our change in relationship with the law and with sin. And it comes through the death of this person, right? Paul's application is found in in Romans 4 through 6. And it kind of, it states two marvelous facts that explain the believer's relationship to the law. And the first thing we find in verse 4 and 5 is that we died to the law. We died to the law. And his, his illustration can get a bit confusing here uh, in light of all that has been discussed thus far. Because if we're looking at it as the believer dies uh, and is raised to life, the law never dies. Okay, So understand that there can be some serious confusion if we read too deep into what Paul is trying to say to us in this moment. And it's easy to do here. Because in his illustration, the husband dies and the woman is then free to remarry. Right, And so we see this kind of like, conflicting, like, what are you trying to say, Paul? And what Paul is really getting at is the emphasis is on the death and the change in relationship and not so much on the roles the person is playing within the illustration. So we have to understand that, which gets really complicated if you're just looking at it at face value. It's like, wait a minute, so the law died? And so then she can, and it's like, no, 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 no. We're just understanding there is a change in relationship. That death has taken place, which then means there is freedom from the old law. There's freedom from the law that was there. Now you have freedom to move forward. So really, it can get very confusing if you, I mean, I had to read like seven commentaries to fully get my mind around this part, and that's not a lie. Um, that's me being vulnerable here. I'm not as smart as I try to sound, right? It's a, so the law is not dead. We're the ones that died. So like I said, the only thing Paul needs from this illustration is death. Simply put, we, we are released from the law. So we died to the law. The believer does not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of law. Uh, so if you look at the adherence of so many different religions, it, there are, are so many that, that are based on merit and based on keeping a set of laws and commands, right? And, and I wouldn't say that that's all religions, but it's, it's a, a large portion of religions in this world are based on do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do, right? And so it's this buildup of getting things right versus what you got wrong, and at the end, you balance it all out, and if it weighs in the positive for you, great, you get to enter into paradise, afterlife, whatever the, the case may be within that religion, right, and what is stated. 
And so what we're seeing here is that this is Paul saying, that is not our way because we are under grace, right? So we step into this relationship with the Lord. We are justified by our faith, and then we step into grace under Christ, right, and the blood that he shed. So but what we have to understand is that this does not mean antinomianism. And then what that is, there's another $2 word for you this morning. We're just throwing them out there. This is great. Uh, is basically this. This is a convictionless Christianity, it sees repentance as a single event not to be repeated. You walk the aisle, give your heart to the Lord, you leave, you can go be whatever kind of human being you want with no change. That's not what this is. That's not Paul saying the law is dead and there is no conviction for anything ever on the planet ever again. You are now forever complete. We'd call that, some, some would term that as like free grace uh, or in, in the sense of because of grace, you are now free to do whatever you want, right? It's almost like a Southwest Airlines commercial and uh, you're free to move about the sinning. I don't know, right? And so so this, is, this is not the statement Paul is making. He's not saying, listen, we died to the law, therefore there is no conviction, therefore there is no need for righteousness. And so uh, what we're seeing here is that the Christian life is more about... Uh, um, well, the antinomianism, sorry, says like the Christian life is more about ig- ignoring sin and resting in a foggy concept of grace. And that's not what Paul is teaching. John Calvin talks about this release and, and it's basically the release, and this is what he says, is not from the righteousness which is taught in the law, but from the rigid demands of the law and from the curse which follows from its demands because the law leads to death, right? And it's grace and forgiveness leads to eternal life. And so Calvin is even saying in this moment, it's not, you're not freed from the righteousness. It's not from, you don't have to be righteous. And he's saying, no, 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 no. In fact, that's not it. You're freed from the penalty of seeking salvation by the law because it ultimately will only lead to death. So it's not the law that dies, but the believer. So then part B we are delivered from the law. Verse six, I'm gonna reread that real quick. It says this, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the logical conclusion. This is what we're coming to. The law cannot exercise authority over a dead person, right? So we read that at the beginning. And then, the authorized version reads as though the law died, but that's not what he says. Paul wrote, by dying to what once bound us in the NIV there. So death means deliverance, but we were delivered that we might serve. The Christian life is not one of independence and rebellion. We died to the law that we might be married to Christ, united to Christ. We were delivered from the law that we might serve him. And this all refutes the false accusations that Paul taught lawlessness, right? So I wonder if in this church, in this moment, if the, if, if the, the people that were for the law and coming were saying, well, Paul is telling everybody that because of grace, we can live how we want. You can go be a murderer. Right, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's, this, that's kind of what is being 
being thought, right? This is the argument they're bringing against Paul's statement. That's the argument that they're coming against his stance on this grace. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. Don't misinterpret what I am bringing forward. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying about righteousness and that we continue to live in righteousness. So, so Paul continues to expound on this idea, right? And so they have these kind of puffed up arrogance, so to speak, towards Paul's statements. And Paul's going, you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm trying to bring to you. We're saved by grace, but we are still trying to live a life of righteousness. It's, it's not a you know, cast off of, of all conviction. It's not a cast off of, of all understanding of what sin is and that we're just simply covered. But it, it is this idea that because of this grace, we are now free to live apart from sin. And we no longer have to continue in it. Here's the difference. Under the law, there was no enablement given. God's commands were written on stones and read to the people. But under grace, God's word is written in our hearts. We walk in newness of life as we read last week in chapter six and serve in the way of the spirit. The believer then is no longer under the authority of the law. I want you to pick up on this. We are given the spirit and walking in the power and the authority of the spirit allows us and enables us to walk in freedom. And pressing into the spirit and say, Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. Give me the strength to overcome. Give me the strength to live apart. Give me the, the desire to please the Lord. Not out of rigid demands of the law, but out of the love that springs forth from the grace that has been given. This is what Paul is striving for. So the second thing is this, the ministry of the law. So we talked about the authority of the law. We're going to talk about the ministry of the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 13. And so this is, again, another one of those great uh, kind of rhetorical questions that Paul decides to answer himself as we read through a lot of Pauline writings. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? To which Paul replies, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13 did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. He's meaning the law is not dead to me. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might be, this is 
imperative to understand so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Utterly sinful. His objections were ready, right? Well, then what good is the law if we don't need it anymore? Why teach, uh, why, why a teaching such as yours turns the law into sin? So they're, they're against Paul's teaching. He's saying, your teaching takes what was good to us, the law that we were given by God, and it makes it a sinful thing. And, and Paul is going, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what this is. It sprung to life in the understanding of how sinful I really was. Verse seven, as we, we read through it, but we, we see something here that in chapter three and chapter four, we have this understanding that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then in, ver- in chapter four, it says, where no law is, there is no transgression, right? And so what, what, he, what James then goes on to tell us actually that the law is a mirror that reveals the inner man and shows us how dirty we are. I want you to know that Paul didn't use murder or stealing or adultery in his discussion. He uses coveting. Why? Because it's internal. It's inward. It's not this outward sin that people can see like, well, there's murder, there's, there's, there's stealing, you're a thief. He didn't use those intentionally because he's dealing with deeper issues, right? So, so even if those were the areas where Paul struggled or had issues or things of that nature, it all stems from this inward sinful desire. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. And, and you'll see that it's the covetous, you know, this covetousness that leads to the breaking of other commands. It's this desire for things that you don't have. Maybe it's a desire for a thrill you're seeking. Maybe it's, so whatever it may be, it's this coveting that begins to dwell in us and birth other sins. And so, so Paul's particular. I think what we see, that one of the best illustrations we find in the New Testament would be the rich young ruler found in Mark 10, verse 17 through 27. We won't read the whole story, but here's what, here's what we see is that the young man was very moral outwardly. In Jesus, he asked, you know, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commands. He's like, oh, but I have. So, there's, so Jesus brings the law forward and so then he prods a little further and he's like, okay, well, you've never done this. You've never done that. You kept, you've kept the commands. And then he says, then, then take all you have, sell it and give it to the poor. To which the man, what, what happens? He essentially hangs his head and walks away, revealing this coveting spirit with him with this desire of need for more and more and more. So what is Jesus doing in this moment? He's revealing the inward sin that he was unwilling to expose so ultimately, he rejects Christ and hangs on to his sin. So Paul, in this moment, is using this illustration of like, look, look deeper into the heart, right? And, and the law unveils all of this to us. It shows us just how sinful we are. So verses eight and nine say, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Paul's a devout Pharisee. So seeking 
to obey the law before his conversion, it's, it's easier to understand these verses, right? So prior to Paul coming to know Jesus, his life revolved around the law and keeping the commands and upholding righteousness, right? And, and condemning anyone who stepped out of line and say, no, you are a wretched sinner. You know, this is, this is Paul's world. And so Paul in this moment is, is going back and saying, listen, I'm aware of everything the law has to say. I get it. He says, but here's what it did for me is at one point I was completely oblivious to my sin, even knowing the law, right? All of a sudden it became real to him and all it did was reveal to him the depth of his depravity. We have to keep in mind, Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and 56, and this is gonna be kind of stated a lot, moving, not just today, but moving forward, but it says, the strength of sin is the law. Since we have a sinful nature, the law is bound to arouse the nature the way a magnet draws steel. There's something in human nature that wants to rebel uh, whenever a law is given, right? How many of you would go, 45? I bet I can go 50, right? It's just this natural desire. So as a parent, I've been afforded a million illustrations for this moment, uh, which I won't go down the line because I too was very guilty of the exact same things, right? But how many of you have ever seen a child and, and you tell them things for their own good, right? You tell them things for their own protection. Like, no, don't go touch the light socket. That's not good. Don't try to put your note right. And, and yet you find them repeatedly wanting to go, Yes, yes. And you're like, no, no, right? You tell a child, stay back from the water. And where do they go? Right, here's the, so my son, who is uh, now 10 years old and a very good swimmer, so there's no fear of this any longer. When he was very little, we would always have to keep an eye on him because he is a daredevil and no fear, to which I say, God is gonna use for great and mighty things in the future, but he almost didn't make it past two years old. Um, because my parents had a pool and we would go to their house and it didn't matter the time of year, Strat was gonna run and jump into that water and we had to keep a constant watch. And there was a time at about two years old, my little sister had to jump in and pull him out of the water. And it was like this scary, scary. And we had said over and over, Strat, stay back from the water, stay back from the water, stay back. No, 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 no. You turn and all of a sudden it's like, yes, 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 yes. And then you go, you can't swim. We told you no, right? And it's this whole thing. We see that our natural desire, we get better as we get older at obeying the laws, right? We go, you know, so those kind of things. But our natural tendency, is it not to want to kind of push back, especially on certain things where you're like, well, no, I have the right to do so. And it's like, but not in this moment, you don't. Well, yes, I do, right? And it's just kind of this conflict that's back and forth a little bit. And, and why is that? Because we were told no. And we have to work through that. And we have to work through it a lot as children, right? And, and it's this constant process where you're working through because the natural desire, for some reason, being told no incites in us this desire to say yes. So we get that, we see that. And Paul's writing about this very nature within us. It says, listen, the law was given and as the law became apparent to us, our natural desire begins to birth this, this sinful, we go, man, I want, to, I, I want to do that now. I didn't know that I wanted to do that. But now that you tell me I can't do that, man, that's what I want to do. And Paul even says, I was unaware of coveting until the law came in and said, you shouldn't covet. And then Paul's like, then I started coveting everything. 
I mean, this is what he's telling us. He's like, this is what it is. I didn't know. I was like, I didn't know I wasn't, you know. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, you shouldn't want that. I want that now. Like, why did you tell me this? So this is the work of the law within us, revealing uh, uh, the sinful nature in us, but also it begins to bring to life this sinful nature within us, this natural desire to rebel and to push back against God. We saw it all the way back in the garden. It didn't take a whole lot of tempting for Adam and Eve to finally go, all right, we'll eat the apple or whatever the fruit may be, right? We just commonly an apple. They were talking to a snake. And I'm going, you're going to take instructions from a snake? Weak-minded people. And then I say that, and I probably would have had like a whole bushel by the time they got there. Oh, not this one? Sorry. Like, I don't even know. Like, it would have been... Verses 10 and 11, otherwise we'll stay on that too long. He says this, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. This goes back to that idea that it sprung to life, this sin. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So what is he saying? If we look at Galatians 3.21, it says this, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And again, this is Paul. So he's asking his own questions in which he plans on answering. And Paul says, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. It's unable to. The law cannot give life. It can only show the sinner that he is guilty and condemned. This explains why the legalistic Christians and churches oftentimes feel weighted down and feel stuck and can't move forward because the law ultimately brings death. But when you surrender to the grace of God and you step out, under, out from under the weight of carrying it yourself and you step into this new way of the spirit, there's freedom. I, one time we were in Ukraine and uh, we had a few hours in the city of Kiev or Kiev, depending on where you're from and how you say it. And we had a lady give us a tour of the city and it was awesome. We got to see some incredible things going around the city, but we went into a Greek Orthodox church and they, part of the Greek Orthodox that you see is the heaviness of the weight of doing good and doing right because it is very works based in that. And so earning, and so, I mean, it's to the point to where this is, this is wild and crazy. I'd never been into an Orthodox church before in my life. This is my first time in this. And, and you could actually go and pray to different pictures of saints. And then you would kiss the picture. And then they had a little cloth where you could wipe it off, which I go, that sounds like coronavirus ready to break out all over the place. But that's, uh, but that was a part of their process, right? And it was this whole thing where then they had a whole uh, thing built across the front of the stage. So you couldn't actually even enter up to the platform unless you were the priest. And there's this massive like veil thing that was between you. And you walk in and it was heavy. You just felt the weight of, I can't be good enough. And what do they send you with as the lasting image on your way out but this massive 
portrayal of people burning in hell. Let that be an encouragement to you as you leave. I mean, that's just kind of the weight of this kind of legalistic idea and understanding of the law of turn or burn, right? I mean, just this weight of either you get right or you get left, right? And it's this heaviness. And when we walked through there, it was like, whoa, this is, this is so crazy. Verses 12 and 13, and this is crucial in understanding this. And it says this, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. There are people outside of the church who are aware uh, that there is such thing as sin, right? I had a conversation with a guy this past week at the gym, and he was just asking questions about this, that, and the other, with an awareness that there are wrong things that can be done. And, and we talked through some of the things. It was a great conversation, um, and it was a great moment. But, but there is this understanding and awareness, then, that, that there is sin, and that sin is an issue in the world. Here's what I found that too often in the church, we make the mistake of not understanding how sinful sin really is. Oftentimes, we, we, we make excuses with words like mistakes or weaknesses. Understand this. God condemns our sin and tries to get us to see that we are exceedingly sinful. Until we realize how wicked sin really is, we will never want to oppose it and live in victory. That's the purpose of the law, is to be aware of the depth of our sinfulness so that in turn, there is a new depth and awareness of repentance and a desire to please the Lord in all that we do not in the sense of the weight bearing down on us from the law, but in the understanding of, oh God, I want to please you. Just like Paul said last week, in the same way you offered yourself to sin, offer yourself to righteousness and to the Lord. That same pursuit of saying, wow, I was not good, but by your grace, I want to pursue you and all that you are and to do what your word says and to live out this life that is pleasing to you little recap of that portion. So his, his, Paul's argument here is, is pretty remarkable. It says, the law is not sinful. It is holy, just, and good, right? We read that. But the law reveals sin, arouses sin, and then uses sin to slay us. If something as good as the law accomplishes these results, then something is radically wrong somewhere, right? The law came from the Lord, so it's holy, it's good, uh, so therefore, it can't be bad. And if it accomplishes all of these other things of our awareness of sin and the awareness of, of how awful we are, then something is wrong somewhere, right? So then the conclusion of this portion is this, to see how sinful is, to see how sinful sin is when it can use something good like the law to produce such tragic results. Sin is indeed exceedingly sinful. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with my sinful nature. And then this prepares the way for the last portion here. 
Number three is the inability of the law. And I'll read this quickly. Uh, Verse 14 through 25, this is the last of it. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. How many of you can agree, right? You can relate, right? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. And then here we go. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I'll do these quickly. The law cannot change you. Uh, Verse 14 says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. The character of the law is described in in, in four words. He calls it holy, just, good, and spiritual. Now, that's the, the fourth word. That the law is holy and just, nobody can deny because it came from the holy God who is perfectly just in all that he says and does. The law is good. It reveals God's holiness to us and helps us to see our need for a savior. But what what does it mean that the law is spiritual? It means that the law deals with the inner man, the spiritual part of our human nature, as well as with the outer actions, right? Which are birthed from within the inner part of who we are. Our nature is carnal. Our nature is is flesh, it's sinful. But the law's nature is spiritual. This explains why the old nature responds as it does to the law. It's, It's been well said this, the old nature knows no law, The new nature needs no law in the sense that in our old person, we were sinful. We wanted to push back. We wanted to reject. We didn't want to live the law. In the new condition, in the regenerated person that is under grace, that is walking in submission to the Lord, all of a sudden, there's no need for the law because we want to please the Lord regardless of what it may say. We want to do right. We want to live right. We want to walk right because of the grace that has been given to us, empowered by the Spirit. The next thing, the law cannot enable you to do good. Uh, Three times in this passage, Paul stated that sin dwells in us. Uh, He's referring, of course, to the old nature. It is also true that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 
in Romans 8, uh, we'll talk about it next week, but Paul will explain how the Spirit of God enables us to live in victory. Can we say amen? Oh, man. Something the law can't help us do. And then the last thing here is this. The law cannot set you free. I love that, that Paul says, in, in reference to just how wretched he is, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's saying, I see how bad I am because of the law. I'm aware of, of my sin and my depravity and how wretched I am because of this law that I'm, I see. And it just arouses sin within me. And he's saying, who will rescue me from this? And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'll invite the worship team. So is there any deliverance? Of course there is. Of course there is. I thank God that there is someone who shall deliver me. Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because the believer is united to Christ. He is dead to the law and no longer under its authority. But he is alive to God and able to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more through the, the ability to live in freedom next week in, in Romans chapter 8 and understanding how does this relate, how does this connect. Again, the idea is not we're not free from the righteousness that we're supposed to live under, but we're free from the, the weight and the condemnation that comes by the law. So it's not a, a license to sin, and it's not a bound to the, the, the rules and the guidelines of the law. It is a freedom to live a life that desires to please the Lord through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's driving at through this whole thing. He says, listen, last week he said, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as we, as we try to live by the law only, it ultimately will, will just reveal itself in death because we can't live according to the law. We're incapable. We're incapable. We're not able to do so. We see it in our human nature. And all the law does is reveal to us how sinful we truly are. All the law does is begin to draw out this sinful desire like a magnet to steal. It pulls Paul himself, we're talking about Paul himself. He says, I want to do good and I can't. I don't want to do evil and I do. We're seeing somebody who has struggled and fought with this and fought with this and is aware of, of, of how difficult it has been to try to just live according to the law. But he says, oh, who's going to deliver me? And he says, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Could you imagine that moment on the road when the Lord shows up and Paul is blinded by the glory of Jesus and he calls out to him and says, why do you, why do you persecute me? In this radical transformation moment where the grace of Jesus overwhelms Paul and he says, oh Lord, I'm sorry. In broken, humble repentance, who can deliver you? Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. 
There's no amount of, of, of list of rights and wrongs that can satisfy our desire to live in righteousness. It's only in submission to Christ. It's only in the, the realization of the Spirit dwelling in us that wants to empower you to live outside of sin. And today as we come to a close, as we bring it to an end, I, I want to do two things. One, I want to give you a chance to ask Jesus into your heart if you haven't. And two, I want to pray over you to have freedom from, from the weight of trying to do it yourself and trying to make it happen. And I want, I want you to have freedom to live by the power of the Spirit as, as He enables you and empowers you to do good that you can't do on your own, to be righteous, to live a life of righteousness that you can't do on your own. I can't, we can't, none of us are able with every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask this first question. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Ryan, I need to ask Jesus into my heart, plain and simple. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that that I need Jesus. I recognize that that it's only by him that I, I can find eternal life. We just talked about how the law leads to death. Trying to do it on my own does not lead to eternal life, but through the grace of Jesus, there is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.